0: Hey team, Oliver here. Today I interview Kyle Dirksen, founder and CEO of Onewheel about their journey. Kyle has been in the space since the very beginning and epitomises the builder mentality. He was tinkering with lots of components back in the late 2000s and built his first prototypes, much like we have always envisaged as how micromobility would evolve. I also really enjoyed the conversation with him about funding and manufacturing, as Onewheel has taken quite a different approach to others in the industry. I really enjoyed it and I hope that you do too. If you wanna check it out, this video is also up on YouTube on our MicroMobility channel where you can see better images of the vehicle as well. In the meantime, if you haven't already, I encourage you to come on and join us for the next MicroMobility America conference, which is now scheduled for the 23rd of September in San Francisco. It'll be at Pier 70 and we'll have more than 50 top speakers from the industry, more than a thousand global participants and hundreds of startups and brands represented. If you love this space and want to find your tribe here, head to micromobility.io to find out more details and get tickets. And with that, here's Kyle. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Kyle Dirksen from Onewheel. Kyle, pleasure to have you on the show. How are you? I'm
1: doing great. Big fan of the podcast, so happy to finally be on here
0: yeah oh hey thank you yeah yeah and i'm really stoked we've finally managed to get, track you down and get you on so for folks who are kind of new to this i mean i i know of the one wheel it's been kind of it's such a unique vehicle in this space i'd love for you to just tell us maybe a bit about it first and then we can get into this sort of backstory of how it came to be
1: so one wheel if you've seen one riding around town is sort of a electric board with one big wheel in the middle it's actually a go-kart tire with a motor inside it And active stability so it's actually balancing you and so you just lean a little bit towards your front foot to go and lean back to slow down and you know now there are tens of thousands of them in the world
0: yeah the thing that's always struck me as quite interesting about them is that they're very well they look like snowboarders the way that people look when they're riding them look like snowboarders and they're quite different from the other unicycle style vehicles where you've got the foot well you're facing forward rather than facing to the side And so so I've never actually ridden one, I'll admit. I look at all that stuff, I ride a scooter, I'm terrified of safety with the scooter as it is. So I kind of look at one wheel and I'm like, oh, and unicycles probably more so than you guys. But yeah, like how did you even come to do this? I mean, it seems like such a kind of weird vehicle in the first place. Like what was the backstory to it?
1: Well, the inspiration for me was definitely snowboarding. I grew up in Western Canada near the Rockies and snowboarding on powder is this amazing experience that I love. And then I came to study at Stanford for college and you know a little farther from the mountains, but still you can get up to Tahoe in four or five hours. At least you could then, now it's like eight or nine hours as there yeah. are problems with mobility, as you've discussed. But you know, that feeling is just amazing to me, and I wanted to have that feeling all the time. And so, to me, skateboarding didn't really have that sensation. Skateboards, you have little hard wheels, you feel really connected to the ground, whereas when you're on your snowboard on powder, you feel like you're flying or you feel like you're on a, a fluid surface, basically. and that's the experience I wanted to create with one wheel. and so, It was actually something that I was tinkering on nights and weekends. I worked as a design consultant at IDEO after I got my master's in mechanical engineering. But I'd spend my spare hours trying to, you know, make this dream a a reality. So I got some, you know, go-kart tires and motors and put them together and Originally tried to see if I could do it without self-balancing, which of course is impossible. <laughs> Figured that out pretty much on day one and then realized, yeah. okay, I got to use control systems, which I had a little bit of familiarity with from studying in my master's. Built a version one prototype with an Arduino and a big, you know, motor from, you know, washing machine or something. You know, batteries from security lighting, big lead acid batteries at the time. This is this is around 2008 or so. Mm. But after some time tinkering, I got it going and was able to ride down the street and put a few of my friends on it. And they were like, wow, this is awesome. Can you build one for me too? <laughs> and then I actually had to put it back on the shelf for a little while because the tech wasn't really here yet to make, you know, the kind of experience that I wanted to, where it was really elegant and integrated, you know, needed to wait till the InHub motor technology was available and lithium batteries got to the point where they could be small and light. You know, a lot of the enabling technologies that you talked to your other guests about. Also, the MEMS, gyro, and accelerometers. 2008, I mean, that was like the early iPhone, you know, people were Mm. amazed that when you flipped it, your photos would flip around. And, you know, I I could see that that technology was going to get, you know, more sophisticated and the the gyros, which really allowed it to, you know, move significantly past what accelerometers can do on their own, uh, we're, were just starting to be integrated. I think the ones I had on my prototype cost, you know, 80 or $100 each, um, you know, and subsequently over the next few years, those dropped to pennies yeah. because of the, the volumes of smartphones. And so. Fast forward a few years, you know, we launched the product in 2014.
0: And so, because it is exactly the sort of story that we would expect of, right? in our thesis for micro mobility, which is that the low end kind of modularity of components come together. You must've been doing this earlier than Sanjay, like doing boosted and, and that, but, but by the sounds of things you, you ended up launching vaguely around the same time with actual products into the market.
1: Yeah, I think I was tinkering on the the concept a little bit before them. You know, we were both students at Stanford around the same time. And then they were kind of looking at it from the, you know, the drone technology, you know, the small outrunner motors that people were using in drones. And they realized that, you know, electric skateboards were, were due for reimagining them with this new kind of powertrain. And I was looking at it more from this control systems perspective, you know, how could you take what you know, usually when you study control systems in in school, it's it's to build applications like, you know, flight computer for a missile or, you know, some kind of exotic defense application. And I thought sort of what's the swords into plowshares type of application here where we could use that for fun, you know, instead of destruction. And, you know, really wanted to build something that had a, you know, the sense that it, it can only work because of the technology, right? You know, it seems impossible. And that, to me, was really one of the most compelling things is that you could build a totally new form factor of a vehicle using active stabilization and in-hub motors, which, you know, just hasn't existed before. While I was at IDEO, I helped spin out an electric bike company called Faraday Bikes. uh, Oh, I remember Faraday.
0: They had the two-tube top. Yeah, yeah, they were gorgeous bikes.
1: Yeah, double top tube, you know, so... With that, you know, we were taking a familiar form factor and adding a motor to it. And really, we were an early design leader in, in e-bikes. You know, the mm. e-bikes at the time were very rough. They were like, you know, nylon bag with some huge batteries on the back rack of a cheap mountain bike. And that was what an e-bike was. And it was very much a kind of DIY fringe type of movement. And we mm. said, hey, we need to make an e-bike that appeals to bike snobs because they're the ones that will pay the kind of prices that, that e-bikes command. We're some of the first to hide the batteries in the frame tubes and build something that most people could look at and not know it was an e-bike which was really our goal there super cool product we won some design awards and and commercialized that and that's really where i got the bug for micromobility and then you know wanted to take it sort of farther you know into building something that
0: like i said just really could not exist without the, these new technologies mm. and so you kind of skipped over it when you said like i went and Parked it, and then all of a sudden we launched the product in 2014. I am very <laughs> curious about what happened doing like when you parked it and what happened in 2014, because you know you were at IDEO, sure, whatever. But you know th- there's a company formation story in there, which is I can imagine talking to others who were in the micro mobility space. That story of what happened in the 2010 to 2014 space or 2015 space, you know, it was brutal. Like it's, it, by the sounds of things, in terms of being able to raise money for hardware and thinking about building a company in that space, and you know you're obviously. There, when Alta was being born, and all these other companies, Lit Motors was raising, etc. Like, can you talk me through what that was like to be in there, trying to build a company in that, in that time, in that space?
1: Yeah. I mean, so we launched on Kickstarter, you know, and as had a couple of other, I mean, we launched Faraday on Kickstarter as well. It was kind of the golden age of Kickstarter, right? it was still pretty early. Optimism was high. You know, now there's more backlash and people are more skeptical of projects, but there really were a lot of amazing companies birthed out of that that era of Kickstarter mm. where the crowdfunding allowed you to to solve this chicken and egg problem of customer demand and investment right the, the investors want to see customer demand but you can't create customer demand until you go start marketing it and, and build it which needs investment and so how do you crack that and you know, kickstarter was was one of the things that we used you know fortunately i was able to do a lot of the early R and D on my own because of my background in engineering uh, to, to get it to the stage that we could at least you know fake it well enough for a kickstarter video um, and that's, that's what we had in early 2014 and then mm off of that, you know, raised some early seed investment, but, but really navigated a course where we could use that seed investment to hire the initial team, build the first production runs, but not really fall into the, the traditional kind of VC funding stages because, you know, i had observed a lot of hardware companies that had failed at the Series A level, Series B, Series C, and it just to me there there seemed to be this lack of fit really for the the vc model and consumer yeah. hardware which everybody is still trying to make sense of on kind of both sides of the table like how come sometimes it works phenomenally and, and other times it just doesn't but i think you know i went up and down sand hill road and you know talked to all those guys and at, at the time this was just after juicero had raised and they said oh we oh, just right. invested yeah. in our favorite hardware company we've ever seen it's this thing it makes juice you know, and it's there's not only makes juice;
0: on it on really it. just pops a bag and like puts some water in it. And, yeah, we got yeah. juice. Yeah, 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 yeah. And
1: so that was the flavor of the month. You know, micromobility was not yet something that was on investors' radar, certainly. And you know, it was challenging to raise. Ultimately, we we did get you know some additional investment in the door, so we could keep keep building and work our way to the next levels. But because you know we you know we're sort of bootstrapping and and operating with, you know, somewhat limited reserves, It, it forced us to be smart about supply chain, cash flow and all those things that hardware businesses really need to, you know, wrap their arms around early because those are the problems that if you try to make them up with scale, they just, you dig a deeper and deeper hole.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's, it's actually fascinating talking to other entrepreneurs in the micro-mobility space, including one of my favorites, David from Wheel, who when I asked him, I was asking a couple of them, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to be interviewing you and what should I ask him? David's just like, look, Kyle's just like a legend. He, like, he, he kind of <laughs> like that in the, in the sense of, you know, you raised money early, but then you were like, it doesn't make sense. There is not a good match between VC and what we're trying to do. And so you've tried to build a company that's independent of that. And, and I think that that's a really, you know, having watched the space develop a lot and like how yeah, th- 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 that level of independence, the ability to be able to build a company that obviously is a little bit more resilient in that space and not so reliant on that external funding is just really, really cool and really special. So I just wanted to congratulate you on that. But w- w- <laughs> f- like, was that a necessity more than anything? Or did, was that a, a kind of conscious choice in terms of how you thought about building the company?
1: You know, it's a pretty conscious choice. I mean, I'd, I'd seen, like I said, these sort of VC flame outs. I mean, Juicero, you know, a little, I mean, maybe a year after all the VCs told me it was the greatest thing ever, you know, and they'd raised a hundred million or something, they were gone. Right. It just, you can burn very brightly and spend a lot of money really fast in hardware. And so I wanted to build a little slower because you know, also with hardware you know the barrier to adoption in our case it, you know at that point was a 1500 hundred dollar price point it's not an app that people can download for free and you know you can figure out how to monetize later this is you know you need to get people over that hump and because there's that price point barrier for people to get in, th- there's a certain adoption curve that people, you know, there's gonna be some people that on day one are like, yeah, I'll pay extra to get it early, you know? I mean, and those are the people that are on Kickstarter. But then to actually get the word of mouth sort of flywheel spun up with people saying, yeah, I got one of those and it's really awesome. And here, why don't you try mine? Maybe you should get one too. And then we can go riding together. That all takes time, you know? And,
0: and more more capital can't really just shove that along. hmm mm. So uh, I'd love to kind of dig into the vehicles. I feel like we've talked about a lot of other things, but the vehicles at this point. So you obviously have, what, you have one model in the beginning. Now you've got multiple by the looks of, well, as far as I understand, including kind of a mixture between off-road and on, on-road or commuter versions. Take me through that, like what, what vehicles do you have now and, and where are they finding markets?
1: Yeah, so we have two models, the Pint and the XR the xr is sort of from the original lineage that we had the original one wheel and then plus and then xr xr can go up to about 20 miles on a charge up to 19 miles an hour you know ride on and off road and then a couple of years ago we introduced a lower price model called the pint which is smaller lighter it doesn't have as much range but is also a really awesome ride and you know we want to get under a thousand dollars
0: so that one's at 950 and the, the big one XR is at 1799. Which one sells the most and who are the people who are typically buying them and what what sort of use case are they buying them for?
1: Both Pint and XR are very popular. I think that the market, you know, there is a significant high-end market and there is a significant more more casual market. I think that's one of the things that, that has struck me building this business is you know not only is it these technology building blocks that have enabled this you know a sort of golden age of micromobility but it's also dtc e-commerce right and the fact that you don't need to convince one buyer at one huge retail chain that they need to carry your product you can convince you know a a few buyers over here and a few over there and they can buy it on your website and that allows you to build something that doesn't need to you know solve the needs of 100 percent of people right? You can say, look, there's 10 or 20% of people that love doing things outside. They love snowboarding. They, you know, if it's active and adventurous they're in, and those are our people, you know, should my grandma get a one wheel? Like, no, it's not, it's not designed for her. Totally. Totally. But it's for, you know, a group of people and we're able to, you know, effectively find and connect them online and now increasingly offline too.
0: Yeah and take me through that because you've got the offline component. It's one that I feel like is really important and yet in many ways it's really hard. <laughs> so what was the strategy that you've used for distribution? You started obviously DTC but the reason I ask this I have friends in New Zealand who have one wheels and they have they swear by them they're like they're really cool I really, but I've never been to anywhere I can buy one like there's no shop or anything like that I can go trial and I haven't had a chance to go try theirs yet so I'm, I'm still in that space of Interested, but probably haven't had a chance to try it out yet.
1: You know, global distribution is one of the things that we're we're still working on. You know, we, we have a decent number of pickup points in Australia, but not not really in New Zealand yet. We're working on our, our first few, but yeah. So you know, one side of that is the the retail network, and we've got you know lots of dealers in the U.S. and, and some in Europe now where you can go and, and most of those locations, you can test ride a one wheel, which is key for a lot of people. They really want to yeah. taste the experience before they, you know, commit to that, that kind of expense. And then, you know, but the other thing is just the community of one wheel riders. And they're, you know, initially we helped broker those connections through online forums that we hosted. And then they, they subsequently took the discussion to Facebook groups and other places and, you know, meet up groups and group rides, which now we have an app that connects to your one wheel within that you can actually plan and find group rides. And there's some big group rides, you know, 100, 200 people sometimes, uh, which is really- really amazing seeing the photos from those you know usually it's more like 10 to 20 people but yeah really all over the world now there are one wheel group rides and you know it's like you get into this new activity and you're like wow this is really fun but i'd love to do it with other people where do i find those other people you know you go online say hey are, you know are there any other riders you know wherever you live and yeah people get together and, and ride together because you know the social element is significant and you know you see that with cyclists you see that with motorcyclists you see that with other forms of transportation where people really you know want to want to do it together
0: that, that has been one of the things that I've really admired about your company and the way that you've done it. And similar to like Boosted, I think did a really good job of community building around kind of like quite a niche vehicle. And the other one as well, because you, you had that one view, like you had the, you have obviously those rides, but you also had the one wheel event where you were doing like that. Was that a hill climb or a, like it was an off road version? I saw yeah, it so was, we're doing,
1: we're doing racing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we've got the, the one wheel racing league that started, you know, very grassroots. We were out in Colorado at, at the mountain games. And uh, we were an exhibitor and we said, hey, what if we just sort of on the on the slide just laid out a little course here in, the, in mm. the town square with a couple of cones and people could race around it, mainly people from our company because there weren't that many, you know, one wheel riders out there yet. And so we did that and lo and behold, there, all these people came and sit around and, you know, took videos on their phones. And so the next year we, we built it a little bigger and the next year we built it bigger. And then they were like, hey, you can't actually do this here anymore. You kind of yeah. see what you <laughs> So we went on, you know, now we're, we're hosting events on ski resorts, uh, in the summer. And, you know, this year we had three regional qualifiers and the big race for the rail is coming up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Uh, of course that's another
1: place, you know, racing is the thing that you guys talk about, whether it's automotive or, you know, other micro mobility stuff that's happening now, but any anything you know human nature is they want to go race it right <laughs> and,
0: um, especially with these vehicles as well because yeah. it's just so they're fun yeah i'm the the big one we haven't actually had we did we covered them off in the micro mobility world conference but i haven't had them on the podcast and i really should do it as the as the e-scooter folks who are trying to build like their scooters got 100 k's now it's bananas <laughs> the stuff that they're yeah. talking about doing and um, it's obviously pretty pretty i think a really exciting space yeah, um, and on, you know, on the one hand, that's
1: not for everyone. And frankly, like I couldn't even probably make it down the one wheel race course that these people yeah. are going absolute top speed on. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's inspiring. And it, it also pushes us to develop a better product. Right. And it pushes riders to develop their skills.
0: And, you know, of, of course, raises the profile of, of what we're doing yeah well it's t- you know it's a, it's a, it's like free content for you guys right if you got a heap of people going out and generating some amazing stuff but i watched the video of the race for the rail from last year where they had like the some of the helmet cams it was like yeah, got they've got banana what and, felt like uh, banana speeds to me on what it <laughs> feels like a you know it's just a go kart wheels those are the best yeah.
1: riders in the world for sure yeah which i think is yeah. another interesting concept right is like take scooters, right? I don't really talk about so and so being a great scooter rider, but I do talk about so and so being a great one wheel rider. And there there yeah, was interesting. A, from the beginning we had to de- decide, you know, is this thing a toy, is it a sport, is it a vehicle? And we really said we wanted it to be, you know, a sport and a vehicle. And so everything we've done is, you know, chasing that way. You know, people ask us, oh, are you going to make one for kids? Like, no, that's not really like the the focus here. You know, we're 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 trying to make the most advanced vehicle that we can and connect with people who love sort of pushing the limits and taking it farther.
0: Yeah, yeah. Kind of going into that, as you think about it, right, that the one thing that I've, as I sort of mentioned, I still look at that and go, man, this feels a little bit, it it looks like it's got a bit of a learning curve to it. The the fact that it's got the stabilization systems in place and all that sort of stuff still strikes me as being, from someone who's looking at it going like, oh, that looks like it's challenging to ride how do you counter that learning curve and kind of getting over that hump
1: yeah i mean really the number one way is is to go try one you know mm. find one of your friends that that has one and you know wear your helmet and go, you go have a go on it you know it, it really is significantly easier than it looks as people have tried other board sports you know learning to snowboard it takes three or four days of just falling so many times to get the hang of snowboarding if you know if you've ever done any surfing i mean that's it's really a lifelong pursuit you know it always yeah. it always humbles you you know one wheel is really like you're you're gonna learn in a couple minutes you know and mm. it looks much more intimidating than it is and so we we love doing events where demos are available because you you just get all shapes and sizes of people that realize, wow, this is actually you know totally doable. <laughs> and so, you know, with with COVID and the pandemic, we had to obviously you know cut that whole program. But you know, we've we've done pop up shops and demo tours and things like that, and really getting on the board is, is best. And, and similarly, at our at our retailers, you know, most of them you can go demo the board and, and try it. And yeah, it's just a couple of minutes. You know, I mean, and the interesting thing too is that there's a bit of a double standard, right? Because nobody knows how to ride a bicycle until they learn how to ride a bicycle, right? Yes. You, you remember what age you were when you learned. I was five, but everybody remembers that moment. And at first you're like, there's no way I can ride a bicycle. And then eventually you, you learn and it clicks. One wheel is significantly easier than that. It's just that most people already know how to ride a bicycle. So we get to bring that experience of learning to ride a bike for the first time to, in many cases, you know, adults that are, learning how to one wheel for the first time and like reactivating those parts of their brain, (laughs) Uh, Mm. you know, the joy of learning something new and then you get it and then you're good to go. And that's, people ask, you know, is this recreation or transportation? And really it's, both but it kind of sneaks at it from a recreation side you know most people are going to get aboard have fun with it and then they're going to realize oh i could ride to the shop on this thing oh i could actually commute
0: on this thing and you know that's kind of the the direction that this goes you're saying all this and I'm like, damn, I got to get me one of these. Where I live at the moment, I take a train to, to town and I, at the moment, I take my boosted rev scooter down to the train and hop on and do all that sort of stuff, like there's no reason. Actually, that would be even easier because it would mean I can go and sit and sit down and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the, the things too, you know, having having done e-bikes in the past is that
1: there's actually some non-negligible friction at either end of an e-bike journey, right? You have to lock it up, Um, you know, on the train, at least where we live, there's designated cars and there's only so many slots for bikes. And if it's full, you got to wait for the next train. And, um, you know, if if you lock your bike outside in Santa Cruz, where we live, or San Francisco, like, and it's a $3,000 e-bike, you know, like, good luck with that. It may or may not be there when you you get back out. Oh, it starts raining and you want to, you know, switch to an uber to go across town it's much difficult or impossible if you have a, a bike with you whereas with the one wheel it's it's like inherently multimodal right you can pop yeah. it in the trunk of a car you bring it with you on the train you bring it in with you when you go to your destination um and it yeah for me um being a, a train commuter for a while um that was always daydreaming about having a one wheel that was before we developed
0: it but um that was that was one of the things for sure that, that led to it and, and that for me, like when I, when I think about it, you know, the reason I love taking my scooter, I have an e-bike too, and I don't take it anywhere. I kind of ride it around and then I come back to my house. Mm-hmm. But I, but I take the, uh, my, my uh, scooter with me because I can hop on the train. I'm not constrained by the, the, the limits of how many, so you can only take up to three bikes on each train. And so you kind of turn up to the station, not knowing if you're going to be able to hop on because you and so, where's my yeah, scooter, I hop on that no means problem. you don't know
1: when you're going to get to your destination, and that exactly,
0: means, yeah. it's about planning and yeah, and all those sort of things. And so that's why I love the scooter, and I can also go and take my scooter into everywhere that I go. Uh, and I've had one place, I think, in like the two and a half or three years that I've owned it, who sort of said, no, 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 you can't bring it in here. But otherwise, everyone else is like, yeah, no, we don't mind. You know, it's not not a big problem. And I think you know that nanomobility, I think there's like a whole category of micromobility mobility. We kind of need to go and redefine in some ways, <laughs> uh, Horace and I. Around um, the the idea that there's something that's like really all the time with you, you know, there's mm-hmm. the movement of going from having like a laptop or a tablet to a phone, you know, equivalent, and, and just it's you always have it. It, it, and it's so small that you can kind of get around with it. Um, uh, that that that's fascinating. Um, and, and like you, sorry, you mentioned as well. By the way, uh, kind of COVID nineteen and, and, and the impact that COVID's had in terms of your 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 um, the events and things like that, that that you're doing. How's the rest of the business been? Like, you know, how has it taken off? Is it flatlined? Any, any, anything you can reveal in there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we were affected in the same way that a lot of companies in the outdoor space and and you know owned micro mobility space were were probably affected. Where Starting in the spring with lockdowns, there was actually a lot of demand for our product and Of course, all that demand went online because you know none of our retail channel was open and so you know our our online store was doing brisk business uh, you know in the spring and summer of, of last year and really, what it did you know as it has across the e commerce industry is it just advanced that curve you know several years past you know where it was originally because you get you know, more people using the product, each rider is a mobile billboard for the product. And, you know, um, the, the sales side was really, really strong. You know, logistics were challenging. You know, our factory, which is in San Jose, California, you know, we're one of the only domestic US manufacturers of, of small electric vehicles, you know, that was closed for a while. You probably saw Elon tweeting, you know, to the county government his dissatisfaction with having to shut manufacturing. We were sort of affected by that same thing. So, you know, we were able to get things back online and, you know, hustle to keep up with demand through the rest of last year. And so, you know, overall, uh, I mean, it was a challenging time for everyone. Obviously, it's, it's it's hard to make progress on a lot of other things. But
0: in terms of the top line and demand, you know, it was, it was very strong last year. Yeah. And talk me through that, because I, you know, I think that the fact that you've got a U.S. manufacturing plant is an interesting counterpoint, especially because we know that boosted obviously went under, I think, in part because of everything that happened with the Trump tariffs and impacts on supply chains and things like that. like. You, you could have obviously manufactured these anywhere what what was the motivation for you about wanting to to do this locally and, and what's the impact of that being?
1: from the get-go there were two main reasons that i wanted to build you know close to home and one was intellectual property so i, I had seen the story play out many times where a startup had gone overseas to, to do manufacturing of a first-gen product and by the time they were even shipping theirs there were direct knockoffs already shipping you know and you know often you're teaching your contract manufacturer how to build your product better than you even know how right if you're using that model and so I knew I didn't want to do that. That was not a failure mode I wanted to find myself in. And the other is really cash flow. So the reality of working with an overseas contract manufacturer is that you need to send them a lot of money in advance. Then they make your product, then they ship it. Then it takes a long time to ship to you. And then eventually it gets there. Hopefully, knock on wood, you don't have any issues with that batch, otherwise you need to rework them at tremendous expense you know, and then you ship them to customers. And so because this is a several month long process, even longer now, because uh, shipping times are very slow, you're having to decide things about volume and product mix, you know, really far in advance. And if you guess wrong, you're you're screwed. You either have way too many or way too few and and nobody's happy. And so with, with building in California, which we've done since the beginning, We're literally like building a one wheel the day that the order is placed on our website and is shipping Mm. out, you know, that afternoon, which is a huge competitive advantage. And then subsequently, about two years ago, before we launched Pint, we actually brought all our manufacturing fully in-house. So we had been working with contract manufacturers here in California, but now it's fully in-house. And that was another big step up to really see manufacturing not as you know oh a a necessary evil but but as a core competence right something that the better you get at it the more it can you know help improve your business your products you know point to the new technology innovations you should be chasing down and all that kind of stuff and so it's a huge task, right? That's why most startups don't do it. They have their hands full with raising money and generating demand. They gotta, you know, outsource some of it. But we took our time getting to that point, but now, you know, we have all our manufacturing and, and logistics is
0: is under our own roof. Mm, that's very cool. Where does it get to for for you in terms of components and stuff? Because, I mean, like, obviously, I hear the stories about Tesla and all car plants are currently shutting down because can't get chips and all that sort of stuff. How much of your supply chain, so, the, like, the assembly I totally get, but if you're talking about all the components and stuff, if they're still coming from overseas, how much does that impact on your ability to manufacture?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's a mix, right? I mean, mm. uh, there are some components that only come from certain places right and there's you know a lot of disruptions in in those component supply chains right now you know from batteries to you know semiconductor components you know navigating all those as is everyone else but really it's the flexibility to flex your inventory up or down you know if if you can build a board you know the the same day that's ordered that's one extreme the other extreme is you know you can you can bring in a lot more parts and, you know, kind of stockpile. If you see that the, you know, the supply chain is getting disrupted, right? So that you can get continuity of supply, even as, you know, certain certain challenges arrive. So we actually have a lot of space devoted to, you know, raw materials warehousing so that we can, mm-hmm. you know, keep those at those, those kinds of levels. But, you know, I think everybody is uh, struggling from, you know, the global supply chain situation right now in any kind of advanced technology, you know, there's just, radically more demand you know and and interestingly i haven't seen this documented too much but part of the reason for that is that suppliers are trying to move up the value chain and move up the innovation chain they're making the you know leading edge semiconductor node to make you know the the latest new high-end processor or gpu or whatever uh, and that comes at the expense of of making the more bread and butter electronic components that have been you know unchanged for 10 years but you actually need those components to build almost anything. <laughs> so mm. it's, it's good for them, because I'm sure they get more margin on a, on a leading edge processor. But the problem is those, those products you know, can't be completed without some of those key components. Same with batteries, right? You're seeing companies that were making you know, sort of general purpose batteries actually closing the factories and, and shifting into building electric car batteries in different form factors. So not only is demand tight, it's actually decreasing in some cases. Supply is decreasing because they're repurposing factories to go chase the the electric car market. And so, you know, you'll see this play out, I think a lot in the next year or two where there's sort of a a generation
0: gap in in some of the technology. Yeah, fascinating. I'm looking forward to, to unpacking that more. I'm kind of curious, like as an OG of the space, you've seen the development really of this right from the kind of get-go right which is you're playing around and and with what what felt like probably a toy at the time and turned into something that's obviously a a product that's being shipped to tens of of thousands of people but what are you most excited about in the micro mobility space where do you think that we're going to go i mean the horace's thesis it sounds like you're a believer where do you think that kind of logically takes us Yeah, well, I'm definitely a believer. I think that,
1: you know, where it logically takes us is that everyone has a personal light electric vehicle, at least one. And, And I think they probably have at least one that is owned and they may use some shared as well. But uh, you know that is really the landscape, right? So when I said that a few years ago, I think everyone's going to have some kind of personal light electric vehicle. People were like, "You're insane," but mm-hmm. now it's totally reasonable. You're going to have a one wheel, you're going to have an e bike, you're going to have a scooter, whatever, whatever you know suits your needs. Uh, you're probably going to have one, and maybe more than one, right? And you know the, the like the unbundling of of the car is is a real thing. You know we can use material energy space on our streets space in our houses and apartments much more effectively than cars let us do you know we've people have ridden over 50 million miles on one wheels which as far as i can tell from public data is like more miles that have been driven by autonomous cars right (laughs) but the the billions that have been poured into that and so, micromobility is one of those things, it's like here today, it's, it's happening, not everybody has quite realized that it's happening yet, but, but it certainly is, and those exponentials are, are well on their way. You guys cite, cite many of them on the show. You know, I think one, one area that I'm not quite sure about is, like, I don't think there is an iPhone of micromobility. I don't think there is one vehicle or form factor that will be dominant and get 70 80 percent market share i just think that you know it's never been the case in transportation right you, you go to the car dealer they have small ones big ones you know you know pickup trucks which horace hates and you know t- uh, smart cars and they all serve real purposes that, that people have for them and the, the car industry didn't just ultimately one day end up with a single vehicle same with bicycles, right? It's like it's actually going the other way. You know, mm. there's high performance mountain bikes, there's ultra light road bikes, there's really robust commuter bikes. They're specialized, right? And they're specialized because of physical affordances that, you know, cannot really be subsumed into one extremely smart device. I think there's an overlay there that involves sharing. So you may not need. The monster cargo carrying e-bike every day of the week, but the days you do need it, maybe you can access that in an app. You know, I think the the sharing business model is really, you know, it's really unique, right? And mm. it's really like nobody's quite cracked the code. And I know many of your guests are, are working on that. But at the end of the day, it, it seems like it's here to stay, right? And the the modes will change, the pricing will change, you know, who's paying for it may change. But that is going to, I think, be with us for a while. And I think it's just going to enable, you know, people to get the mode that they want when they want it to basically solve their job to be done.
0: Yeah, I've increasingly kind of realized that I think a lot of it's going to end up as owned. I think shared is going to end up in a kind of like quite highly constrained area. Unless we can do something with autonomous where you can end up with the vehicle outside where you need it. It feels to me. I was interviewing well not interviewing i met the head of lime for australia and new zealand last night for for drinks because he was in town and you know the way that their business has evolved is they are you know they're going to bid on the thing for the next little you know five-year contract etc 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 and they're never going to win an entire city anymore yeah. you know that's not a the way that that's not going to play out and so it will be increasingly like i see those as being you know like the equivalent of getting you know, like a bus contract or something like this and I have higher hopes for us as, a, as an industry in terms of what we can do. Um, I think the exciting thing will come in the new vehicle form factors. So I think it's it's the what can we do with, you know, e-mopeds or vehicles that are slightly larger. And then how can we start to reclaim the streets and say, look, this is just a better option. It's going to be way cheaper on a per kilometer basis. We are going to work out how to get these to you. And it'll be, as you say, that mixture kind of owned and shared. Um, and I think most people will, I, I hope own their own. Yeah,
1: I I think people will definitely own. I mean, what we see, right, with one wheels is that people want to own them and then they want to customize them and they they really want them to be a a matter of personal pride, right? You know, we sell different colors of fenders and bumpers and components you can put together and, you know, preview what it looks like on our website and then, but then also put your stickers on it and make it yours. And like, I don't really want to ride your one wheel. I want to ride my one wheel because it's like set up just the way I want it, you know? And so I think there is that pride of ownership, personalization aspect, which is really a key for people. And then, yeah, and then there are some use cases for shared, right, like travel or special purpose vehicles or things like that, where I think, you know, that will be an excellent, excellent model. So I think it's gonna be both.
0: Yeah, yeah, awesome. Hey, well, look, we're running up against time, but I just want to say this has been phenomenal. You're such an interesting character in the space, and it's a total joy to have a chance to uh, kind of unpack that with you. And thank you to Sean also for helping connect us. For folks who want to track you down and, and find out a bit more about you, where would they do that, Carl? So they should go to onewheel.com. They should go to at
1: onewheel on Instagram. It's probably our main social media. And you know or
0: at rideonewheel on Twitter. Yes, awesome. Well, thank you so much and ho- looking forward to hopefully seeing you in the Bay Area for Micromobility America and then hopefully having you back on the show at some point in the future.
1: Absolutely. Find yourself a one wheel to go try and uh, i totally. sure you'll, oh. you'll
0: join our ranks. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to doing this. I'm, uh, I'm resolved. So, uh, yep, I'll let you know what I think. Absolutely.